This is a piece by a guy named Larry Taunton. Larry who? Never heard of her. What sort of a man is he? Pick from Bama. A man like any other, but more so. Well, I thought he was dead. This is the Larry Alex Taunton Show. Let's light this candle. Welcome into the Larry Alex Taunton Show. I, not coincidentally, am Larry Alex Taunton. And in uh, today's show, we're going to hit a couple of topics that I think will be interesting to you. Uh, More on my trip to Europe. You know, I just spent the last three months in Europe researching a... um, uh, several issues, uh, the World Economic Forum um, among them, um, which we discussed in, uh, in, in an earlier show, and I'm sure that we'll discuss in future shows as well. It's just a, it's a gargantuan issue, and it's, it's one that needs a lot of um, unpacking. But what I, what I want to begin with today is the school shooting in Nashville. Now, we're, uh, we're, we're you know, more than a week out from when that happened, and uh, I'm not usually that guy who responds immediately to a given thing that's happening. I, I like to have a little bit of time to process the issue and to, uh, and to then speak to it, hopefully with a little bit more wisdom um, after the fact. What I, what I want to talk about for just, just a moment uh, is the media reaction to this. I'm, I'm working on an article right now about how the left is making terrorists. And, I, and I, choose, I choose my words very carefully. I mean terrorists. How the left is creating terrorists. And I thought about this because I was sitting down and I was reading about the seven, seven subway bombers. You know, that happened in, I think that was 2005. And I, I remember it vividly because I was landing at Heathrow Airport in London just as that happened. So I just arrived, I was flying from Kiev, Ukraine into, uh, into London and I arrive at Heathrow Airport to the news that the what were called the, the 77 subway bombers um, had just killed all sorts of people. Uh, and it wasn't just in subways, by the way. They, they blew up um, a, uh, um, a couple of buses, this kind of thing. Killed, killed a lot of people. I don't remember the final body count, maybe about 50 or so. And um, that event, you know, sticks into my head because I was in London, you know, the day that that happened. I was nowhere near the bombing, just to be clear. Um, when, when it happened, I wasn't in, in any danger, and I arrived after the fact. But it just so happens that was the day I was arriving there. And I was reading um, about this um, in a Frederick Forsyth novel you know, called The Afghan. I decided, you know, my, Lori's been telling me, gosh, you need, you're, you're so into all the evil that's going on in the world you need to find a hobby and get away from this stuff. And she's right because it, I, I feel the need to be working on an article or working on a podcast or doing an interview, doing something, responding to these things, equipping and informing um, the faithful how, how to respond to these issues. And they, the result is that you're almost always amped up. Um, this is, this is actually the intent of the news really to, to do this is to is to agitate you and to keep you in a constant state of 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 unease. That's a that's a Marxist tactic. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to read a novel. And I read the first page, and I decide I'm going to write an article. <laughs> <coughs> and the reason is because 
Frederick Forsyth, who, by the way, I have immense respect for as a novelist um, because the man was uh, is he's still alive. He's in his he's in his eighties. He's a he's a genius. He was a guy. He was a he was a journalist traveling all over the world, um, and he used that as a cover for his, his work for MI6. And so he is, uh, he knows what he's talking about when he's addressing these issues. But in this novel, the Afghan, he begins by talking about historically, truthfully, how the four youth, uh, Muslim youth, who carried out this particular t- attack were all radicalized, how they were all radicalized. And they were homegrown radicals. They weren't radicalized overseas. They were like, like say, ISIS. They were radicalized at home. And it dawned on me as I'm reading that, say maybe two days after the Tennessee shooting, I thought this is exactly what the left is doing. The left are radicalizing youth, not just youth, but primarily youth, just at the WEF. You know, we've talked about that. The World Economic Forum is also radicalizing youth, but in a different way. Um, they're, they're producing Greta Thunbergs. <clears throat> the American left, media, they are radicalizing youth by filling them with hate and stoking it. So that if you're wondering, you know, um, what this looks like, just go in, just go and do a search on the school shooting in Nashville. It was a Christian school. And read the headlines. The headlines are going to say, we'll put a few up on the screen. The headlines will say things like uh, <clears throat> trans people in Nashville are fearful in aftermath of Tennessee school shooting. Why are they feel fearful? Did a Christian walk into some kind of you know trans drag show and start shooting people? No, no, that's not what happened. It was a trans activist. And let's be clear, this is an activist. This was an activist act who walked into a Tennessee Christian school specifically targeting Christians because Christians believe, of course, that this this nonsense is evil. And of course it is. But the media positions it as though it's the trans people who need to be afraid. That is an evil headline. It's an evil headline. Other headlines said things like this. They said... um, former member of Tennessee Christian school shoots up Christian school, you know, something, something to that effect. And because this particular, it was, this was a girl who had quote unquote transitioned to being a, being a male, which you cannot do. Actually, you can just, you can just pretend that you're a male and, and uh, try to pressure other people to play along with your fantasy, which I frankly refuse to do. And by the way, that's another thing. Let me just throw this in. I would urge you to not play along with the fantasy world. Do not allow the left to get away with their redefining words or inventing words. I always just politely ask for people to, to give me definitions. I mean, trans woman, trans man, those are non-things. Transgender, it's a non-thing. There's no such thing as transgender. It's your sex. What is your sex? You are male or female. He created them. And um, so this trans activist walks in and, you know, shoots and kills uh, seven people. This is, this is what, uh, excuse me, uh, give me clarity here. Did we, it was six people who were killed or seven? Six people were killed. 
Gotcha. So uh, I don't know if you heard that, but Matt um, said off camera here, off mic, that the media says seven victims because they are classifying the shooter as a victim. The New York Times issued an apology to trans people because they quote unquote misgendered the shooter. Um, in other words, they were showing sympathy for the shooter. Madonna says, you know, she's holding a. Uh, a fundraiser in Nashville for trans people, not for Christians who were shot, who were murdered. And by the way, misgendering, to go back to my point about not playing along with their definitions, misgendering is calling someone who is a male a female when they are not a female. That's misgendering. In other words, the New York Times didn't misgender to begin with. They misgendered after the fact, when they went back and they issued the apology, don't play along with that game. When people say fascist, uh, having dinner in uh, uh, in Europe and a woman from the UK uh, says to me that red state Americans are fascist. I just simply asked the question, could you define fascism for me? Now, this is a high school teacher. She was clueless. She could not give definition to that. But nonetheless, she claimed it. And, uh, you know, so I just am gently pushing back. Could you explain to me what fascism is? Most people haven't any idea. They're just parroting the nonsense they hear. So refuse to play along with that. When somebody says Nazi, what is a Nazi? Define that for me. What they'll discover is they're defining themselves. <laughs> they, don't, they don't realize that. They don't realize that they have adopted actual fascist principles and worldview. The, uh, the, the World Economic Forum is quite fascist by the way, but don't play along with that. White supremacy, white privilege, define that. What is that? I'm not playing along with that. It's not real. It is not true. So the Tennessee school shooting, just pay close attention to the way this is framed. And this is going to lead us into our next topic. We're about to take a break, but I'm going to talk to you about um, the power of leftist propaganda and how you can... Uh, arm yourself, equip yourself not to be seduced by it. This is the Larry Alex Taunton Show. This is the Larry Alex Taunton Show. Larry is my favorite player. Welcome back to the Larry Alex Taunton Show. I am Larry Alex Taunton. We were just talking about the Tennessee school shooting, and now I want to move from that um, to uh, an article I've just published. It's, it's on my website, LarryAlexTaunton.com. That's LarryAlexTaunton, T-A-U-N-T-O-N, LarryAlexTaunton.com. And it's an article that I've titled, The Power of Leftist Propaganda and How to Avoid Being Seduced by It. Now, let me set this up by, by telling you what what really got me thinking about this. I, while I was in Europe, I, uh, I downloaded um, the 2017 book. Uh, that is to say it was published in, I think, uh, September, October of 2017, a book titled The Putin Regime and Political Murders, Orders to Kill. Actually, it's, I should flip those. It's Orders to Kill, and the subtitle is The Putin Regime and Political Murders, and it's by Amy Knight. Now, Amy Knight may not be known to many of you, perhaps none of you, but I first began reading her. She was born in 46, you know, so she's, uh, she's, she's you know, somewhat elderly now. But I first began reading her when I was a graduate student doing a master's degree in Russian and European history. 
And uh, Amy Knight is a, uh, she's a Russian scholar. She's a Russian um, expert. And hence, the reason you might not know her is most of her work is fairly academic. So I was a little surprised, actually, even to see this book, which was written, you know, for a popular audience rather than, you know, in, a, um, in an academic journal. And I have a high regard. I want to say that from the outset. I have a very high regard for Amy Knight's scholarship. I've never met her. I, I, can, I don't know anything about her worldview in the sense of, is she a Christian? Is she not? Is she an atheist? I, I don't know. But I, in terms of her scholarship, I have a high regard for uh, her work. But this book has been something of a disappointment and, uh, to me. And that's because, again, the book was published in September of 2017. Uh, but it's been something of a disappointment to me thus far because it's clear she bought into, maybe maybe still does, I, I would doubt it now, but that she bought into the whole Trump-Russia um, collusion narrative, uh, which conveniently began to make headlines just on the eve of Trump's inauguration as president of the United States in January of 2017. So again, this this narrative emerges in January 2017. She publishes this book in September of 2017. And um, while the Steele dossier, up, upon which the whole Russia collusion narrative rested, the, the Steele dossier was the foundation for that the, the whole claim that Trump was somehow uh, you know working with the Russians to rig the election and all this kind of nonsense. While the Steele dossier had not been revealed to be a, a complete fabrication, you know, by the time this book was published, I still expected that someone like Amy Knight, who was something of an expert in Russian history, and, and let me explain what I mean by that. Russian history, you simply cannot be an expert in Russian history. You can't be knowledgeable of, of, of Russian history. You you can't even begin to untangle it unless you understand that it's largely smoke and mirrors. The same with the history of China. It's not true of the history of France. It's not true of the history of Britain. Until recently, it's not been true of the history of the United States. What you see, by and large, is what you get. But not with Russia. I always would always tell my students, don't buy into conspiracy theories unless they involve the Russians and possibly the Chinese, maybe North Koreans. Or Cubans, but otherwise dismiss most of the conspiracy theories that you, um, you know, was there a second shooter, you know, in the grassy knoll, you know, that kind of stuff. I, I tend to think those things are just are sheer nonsense. I don't, I don't buy them. Was the moon landing fake? No, no, I don't think it was faked. I, I think they landed on the moon. But when you're talking about the Russians, you need to understand that you need to have a high level of skepticism about whatever it is that they set forward as the truth. It's just simply important that you understand that. And um, so as someone in her field who would have to be pretty well acquainted with Marxist tactics, you would think, and, and also with the role of the secret police and, and propaganda, again, you, you have to understand the role of the secret police and the use of propaganda to, to shape public opinion both at home and abroad, you have to have an understanding of that in order to navigate Russian history. So I expected that someone like Amy, Amy Knight would be one of the first people who would detect that now Marxist tactics are being used 
in the United States. I would have expected a higher level of skepticism on her part regarding the Steele dossier. Not necessarily that she just dismiss it out of hand, but that she would be like, hmm, this seems very suspicious. This seems like something, this seems like something the Russians would do at home. I mean, how is it that this just suddenly appeared? And that the drumbeat went on and on and on that basically framed Donald Trump as, uh, you know, as, as the Manchurian candidate. You know who's the Manchurian candidate? Joe Biden. <laughs> Joe Biden is the Manchurian candidate. He is a sock puppet. But that is, I mean, no one in their right mind thinks that Joe Biden is in control of his own faculties, much less in control of the country. We've all watched him getting off of, you know, what, what's it called, Marine One? The, uh, the, the helicopter and walking into the bushes? When, when they're trying to get him to go into the White House. We've seen him shaking hands with invisible people. We have um, seen, you know, recently this video of a man who's standing next to him as he's reviewing troops. And uh, um, he's saying to him, now keep walking, keep walking forward, keep walking, keep walking. Now we're going to turn around, we're going to turn around, turn around, walk back in, the, in, in this direction. You're going to stand right here on this X. You're going to stand right here on this X. Being directed. How many times have we heard him say things like, I'm going to get in trouble for this? You're the president of the United States. Other than the American people who or your wife, who else are you going to be in trouble with? So a statement like that indicates that, you know, he's clearly being controlled by others. But the Steele dossier, the whole Trump collusion narrative maintained that Trump was some kind of Manchurian candidate. He was some kind of, uh, you know, foreign agent, a Russian agent. And Amy Knight, who is a world-class scholar, seemed to buy into this nonsense. She seemed to believe it. And I have to say that this surprised me quite a lot that she would buy into that. I just didn't think that, I just didn't think that she would. But it seems that she did. And the point that I'm trying to make here isn't really even about Amy Knight so much as it is this. If someone like Amy Knight, who, as I say, is an expert in propaganda and, and Marxist tactics, or at least somewhat of one, because you have to be in order to understand anything about Russian history, if she can be so taken in by the Steele dossier, which has been demonstrated since the publication of this book, to be nonsense. It means that anybody can be. It means that you can be. And it means you have to be on guard. You have to be careful. Knight even published a piece in the tabloid. Someone of her level went and published with the Daily Beast. The Daily Beast is, is, is the national inquirer of news publications. Um, I just wouldn't stoop to, to publishing there, but, but she did. And she stated in it that she believed, not only believed the dossier was, was real, but that it led to the assassination of a Russian FSB general. The FSB is the modern equivalent of the SF, excuse me, of the KGB. And then it dawned on me, Hugh Trevor Roper, who's a historian, uh, he became Lord Dacre, Lord Dacre, British historian. Hugh Trevor Roper, whose scholarship, he's... Uh, He's deceased now, the late Hugh Trevor Roper, I should say. Had a high regard for his scholarship as well. He 
wrote a book called The Last Days of Hitler, which even to this day, uh, I think he, it was first published in 47, 48. Uh, even to this day, that narrative pretty well holds. There's been many attempts to sort of undermine um, Roper's uh, narrative of Hitler's last days, um, but it stood the test of time. It's an excellent book. And yet, Hugh Trevor Roper was completely duped by the so-called Hitler diaries. Um, there were these diaries that were, uh, there were counterfeit, they were fabricated, and they were passed off as real. And Hugh Trevor Roper was called on to authenticate them. And he said they were, they were real. And the guy who fabricated them, uh, you know, eventually it became clear, you know, the guy's laughing all the way to the bank because this is all complete nonsense. He made it up. He had also sold several pieces of Hitler's art. So this guy was a counterfeit expert. And yet Hugh Trevor Roper bought into this. Not since then has anyone been so thoroughly duped as Amy Knight buying into the Steele dossier. She's done the same thing. So if Hugh Trevor Roper, who's an expert on Adolf Hitler, could be convinced that the Hitler diaries were real, and they weren't, if Amy Knight could be convinced that the Steele dossier was real and it wasn't, what other things are people buying in the culture that just simply aren't true? And so the, there's a lesson in here. And the lesson for us, the lesson for you, is that you must be very, very, yet you need to bring a high level of skepticism to the news that it, even from your own side, you try to verify the things that I'm telling you. You know, you recall the Apostle Paul tells the, Pere the Bereans, you know, to verify what he's saying. He wasn't threatened by that. If you think that when I'm, I'm making this stuff up, you think this is conspiracy theory that I've told you this man has come back from the dead? Go and read the scriptures, your own scriptures. See what the prophecies said. Go and verify them. You can verify the things that I'm telling you here, but you need to have a high level of skepticism regarding the news that you're being fed um, on a daily basis. I want to read to you something from William L. Shire's The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. That was a that was a mega bestseller in its day, and to this day it remains in publication, and I just keep waiting for them to alter the electronic version of it. You know, they do that. They, they go into your phone. They go into your laptop, and the electronic version you have when you're doing those updates, they come in and they change things, or they remove them. And I've been waiting to see if they're going to do it. Um, with the, uh, the, with Shire's book, because Shire says that the early Nazis were, quote, sexual deviants, perverts. He says they were largely homosexuals. And he attributes a lot of their, 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 their murderous ideology, he thinks there's a, a kind of spiritual, my word, not his, connection with their sexual deviancy. I think there is too. But the, Shire was in Germany in the 1930s, during Hitler's rise to power. And so he was witnessed, you know, not quite up to Pearl Harbor. Again, he's an American. I think he was from Iowa, but he was a he was with Columbia News Media. Um, you know, Edward R. Murrow, you know, was a colleague of his, and Murrow was reporting from London. He was reporting from Germany. You know, the war started in September 1939. The United States doesn't enter it until December 1941. So he was there after the war 
began. And this is what he had to say about Nazi tactics and um, propaganda. <clears throat> Listen carefully. I myself was to experience how easily one is taken in by, by a lying and censored press and radio in a totalitarian state. Though unlike most Germans, I had daily access to foreign newspapers, especially those of London, Paris, and Zurich, which arrived the day after publication. And though I listened regularly to the BBC and other foreign broadcasts, my job necessitated the spending of many hours a day in combing the German press, checking the German radio, conferring with Nazi officials, and going to party meetings. It was, it was surprising and sometimes consternating to find that notwithstanding the opportunities I had to learn the facts, and despite one's inherent distrust of what one learned from Nazi sources, a steady diet over the years of falsifications and distortions made a certain impression on one's mind and often misled it. No one who has not lived for years in a totalitarian land can possibly conceive how difficult it is to escape the dread consequences of a regime's calculated and incessant propaganda. Often in a German home or office or sometimes in casual conversation uh, with a stranger in a restaurant, a beer hall, a cafe, I would meet with the most outlandish assertions from seemingly educated and intelligent persons. It was obvious that they were parroting some piece of nonsense they had heard on the radio or read in the newspapers. Sometimes one was tempted to say as much, but one realized how useless it was to even try to make contact with a mind which has become warped and for whom the facts of life had become what Hitler and Goebbels, with their cynical disregard for truth, said they were. In other words, people... I want you to understand this, that none of us are immune to the effects of propaganda. None of us are immune to the effects of a wicked culture pushing um, a particular worldview or philosophy. Uh, you become, you, you become uh, desensitized by seeing the, uh, you know, for instance, my, my, my children, a little surprised because I had, you know, they're talking about Downton Abbey. I, I thought, well, I'll try watching Downton Abbey. And I think it's the very first episode where a valet uh, is tying, um, you know, Lord so-and-so's shoes or something, and then he comes up and he begins to kiss him. It was, a, it was a homosexual kiss. I was so revulsed by this. I felt such revulsion. I, I literally wanted to throw up in seeing this, and um, I just immediately hit the, uh, the off button. I, I just... My generation, uh, homosexuality is just not something that we, as a we, we didn't mainstream, we didn't, we didn't accept. And for me to see that in a television show, I found quite jarring and upsetting. Now, now it's all over the place. Now it's in commercials. Uh, now it's it's being shown to children. It's being mainstreamed. You are deliberately being desensitized to this kind of wicked nonsense. You're being desensitized by, um, uh, quote unquote, you know, transgenderism, you're being sensitized to the killing of the unborn. This is why they celebrate it, by the way. It's their way of, of trying to take what is otherwise hidden and in a, in a, um, in a corner of the culture 
and saying, no, we're going to mainstream it. We're going to celebrate it. We're going to make it something that people simply don't give a moment's thought to because they just think, eh, it's nothing. It's like wart removal. It's just, it's just a bit of tissue that's being removed from a woman's body. That's all that it is. Um, the effort there is to desensitize you uh, to the reality of it. And if you think that you, you're not affected, if you think that you're not affected by these things, you're wrong. You're being affected by it in a very big way. And I really appreciated Shire noting this, that here he is admitting, I'm an educated man. I'm, a, I'm not even German. I'm an American. I, I've, been, I've been taught that the Constitution, that the Declaration of Independence, that those those founding documents of the United States are a proper worldview of governance. And yet here I am in Germany, and it's the, you know, the proverbial frog in the pot that's, that's getting hotter. And, uh, and he's, he says, in spite of the fact that my colleagues are American or British, and I'm in regular conversation with them, I'm reading foreign newspapers, not just the German ones, but I have that steady drip a steady drip of German propaganda, and he says, and it begins to affect you. And you know the unspoken bit in here is, don't you? Probably anti-Semitism. He's probably admitting that I began to adopt certain anti-Semitic thoughts and ideas began entering into my head because I was seeing that nonsense all the time. He probably began thinking to himself somewhere in the back of his head, and by the way, I'm not accusing Bill Shire of being an anti-Semite, not, nothing of, of, of uh, that nature at all. Rather, what I'm saying is, I think that what he's trying to tell us here is it made an impression on him because that was the kind of stuff that he was seeing and hearing in daily life and where he began to accept that you couldn't shop at a, at a Jewish bakery or a Jewish store or seeing Jewish people scrubbing these sidewalks or wearing the Star of David or being loaded up into cattle cars, that he began to become fairly desensitized to it. That is happening here now, ladies and gentlemen. It is happening here now. And that means that means you need a fixed point. Now, I was taught when I was was learning to scuba dive that if you become disoriented, which is easy to do when you're scuba diving, watch your bubbles. And it's because bubbles never go sideways. They never go down. They always go up. They always go up. And it, sometimes you can become disoriented to the point that you think up is, is actually down. But if you watch your bubbles, you'll know better. We need a fixed point, ladies and gentlemen. Jesus Christ, Scripture is our fixed point. This is a Larry Alex Taunton show. We will be back in just a few minutes. This show, this ministry is supported by viewers like you. And if you appreciate my work, if you think that what we do at Fixed Point Foundation, if you think that what we do on the Larry Alex Taunton Show is helpful to you, please help us. You can uh, make a fully tax-deductible contribution and help us pay for all that it takes, pay for Matt's salary and pay for me being here and for the production of this show. Thank you very much for your viewership and for watching. I ended the last segment, by the way, this is the Larry Alex Taunton show, and I am Larry Alex Taunton. I finished the last segment by saying you need a fixed point. Now, again, those of you who are familiar with my work know that I am the executive director, in addition to being a writer, an author, uh, a uh, cultural commentator, I am the executive director of the Fixed Point Foundation. Fixed Point this year is celebrating its 20th anniversary, 20 years. It's uh, it's It's incredible. Um, to me, that we've we've come that that far that fast. And when I was thinking of of naming the organization, I'm the founder of Fixed Point Foundation. When I was thinking of naming it, 
I didn't want to call it the Jesus Foundation because that just kind of gives it away. That just gives the game away. We were doing a lot of work in uh, in secular environments. You know, Oxford University. We were uh, at uh, you know Yale Law. We were at you know UConn. We're at Georgia Tech. We're at WNL. We're at uh, you know all over the place. And you're just not going to get into those those places if you give it a name that sounds too strongly like a ministry. So instead, I called it the Fixed Point Foundation. And I've been a at least probably since probably since I was a teenager, I've been a fan of Blaise Pascal. Blaise Pascal, 17th century philosopher, artist, scientist, inventor, theologian, one of the most remarkable people who has ever lived. And Blaise Pascal was a um, was an atheist for uh, much of his adult life, and uh, he converted to the Christian faith. And one of the things that he says in his, I believe it's in his pensées, his his thoughts. You can you can find uh, this this little book. It's an it's an interesting little book. It's kind of like reading you know um, Luther's Table Talk. You know, it's just a collection of his uh, of of his reflections on a variety of topics. But he says this. He says that <clears throat> a ship needs a fixed point, and um, he says in order to to gauge movement. So in other words, if you're aboard ship and you're looking at a piece of driftwood, you can get the wrong you know, uh, idea about your movement. You may think you're not moving at all or that you're moving in a direction that you aren't moving. It's, it's this idea of like you're sitting in a stoplight. You ever done this where you're sitting in a stoplight and the car next to you rolls back, but you think you're the one who's moving and you panic slightly and you, you, know, you hit the brake, but the reality is it's the vehicle next to you. That's because you lack a fixed point in a situation like that. You you think you're moving when you're not, or you think you're not moving when you are. And so he says the harbor serves as a fixed point for those who are aboard ship. They can gauge their movement by seeing that thing on shore, and they get a sense of actual movement. And he says we need a fixed point in morality. Or, or actually, he poses it as a question. He says, where shall we find a fixed point in morality. And it was a rhetorical question because at this point in his life, Pascal was a believer. And so the it's a capital F, it's a capital P. We need a fixed point in reality. It's like Polaris, the North Star. You need something that's fixed in time and space in order to engage your movement. And we're not just talking physical movement here. We're talking about moral movement. And in the previous segment, I was talking about political propaganda and how to avoid being seduced by it. And William Shire in his book, The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, I read to you that portion of his book where he's talking about how he dis- he realized he was being influenced by Nazi propaganda, by the cynical interpretation of the, the cynical distortion of the truth by Joseph Goebbels, you know, who was head of Nazi propaganda. And if you have a fixed point, ladies and gentlemen, you'll more easily detect how your own attitudes are shifting about a given thing, like, say, transgenderism or like, say, homosexuality. You know, the mainstreaming of homosexuality is what made this whole idea of transgenderism, um, which isn't possible. You are what you are, biologically speaking. Um, it's what made that possible, and it just keeps moving further and further. Um, 
so that we now are looking at trans species, you know, individuals who think that they're, they're animals, you know, when they're not. And we are all told we're supposed to, to enter into their fantasy world and reinforce it, that you are misgendering them or mislabeling them when you refuse to play along with the game. Yeah, the expression is non-binary people, you know. So uh, this is, this is what, what they, they believe. Don't play the game. Refuse to play the game. Um, because you're actually doing that person a disservice. It may upset them that you are quote-unquote misgendering them or mislabeling them, but you're not. You're actually doing them a favor because you're offering them a fixed point in morality. You're offering them an, a, a fixed biological point. You're offering them, them a fixed point in, in, uh, in reality because you're showing them, and this is, this is what they don't want. They don't want the truth. They want you to reinforce their non-truth. But by speaking the truth to them, it may upset them, but you're actually showing more compassion to them when you do this rather than playing along and playing the game. And you see, the way, the way we get seduced by this stuff, ladies and gentlemen, is when we don't have a fixed point of morality. And so, as I said in the previous segment, you know, learning to scuba dive, if you haven't been scuba diving, you, if you've never done it, you may think that disorientation, you'd never get disoriented. But you can very easily get disoriented, and it's because when you go down deep, and you know most certifications, a, a typical PADI certification is to 120 feet, and you wear something that's called a BC jacket, and it gives you what's called neutral buoyancy. And so neutral buoyancy is what you're trying to achieve. It's so that you don't sink like a rock or that you don't rise to the surface extreme, extremely rapidly where you can risk, you know, getting the bends. So neutral buoyancy, see all that equipment you're wearing is quite heavy. And if you don't have a BC jacket, which you can inflate, you've got a little button that you hit and it's a vest and you put just enough air in it to keep you from rising or to keep you from falling. And so that's called neutral buoyancy. But if it's dark, if you're doing, if you're doing, um, let's say cave diving, you're doing ship diving, which I've done, or you're just doing night diving, you can't, you can't tell which way's up. And when you have neutral buoyancy, you can be in, you know, any direction, and you can, for moments, have the illusion that this way is up, or that way is up, or that way is up, when it's that way that's up. So you can get disoriented and lost in a hurry. Also, when you're, uh, say, doing something like cave diving or ship diving, that, that, by the way, is very dangerous. And it's why I always tell you know, anyone I'm with, you know, if my, my wife is lost, calls me and says she's lost, or one of my children, I, always, I would always say to my children, you know, you're, you're driving through a city and you're lost. And you know, people, they're, they're often when people get lost, I recall a friend of mine, we were in Venice. You know, Venice is labyrinthine. Venice is labyrinthine. You, you just go down one alleyway to another, and then it opens to five more corridors, and it just keeps going. And I'm with a friend of mine, this maybe 20 years ago, and I can sense he's getting a little panicked, and he tells me he's lost. And I said to him, look, you're not going to run out of oxygen. It's okay. And, I, and it's because I immediately thought about, you know, when you are cave diving or ship diving, if you are lost, you might have 15 minutes to find your way out or you're a dead man. Above ground, it's okay. It's okay. You're not going to run out of oxygen. Take your time. If it takes you 30 minutes, it takes you an hour. It's all good. You're going to be fine. 
Well, when you get into a ship, I recall, I recall diving on this huge freighter, which the Navy had sunk. They'd sunk it, you know, target practice, and then it creates a barrier reef and all kinds of uh, sea life attaches itself to it. And it's my first time to go ship diving. And I'm with a master diver. That, that's an actual ranking, a master diver, friend of mine. And I'm going into the bridge. I'm swimming through the window into the bridge. And he grabs my fin. And he's like, no, 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 no. Don't do it that way. And so he's in, he signals to me to follow him. And so I do. And we go into the bridge. And we go down some stairs. We go into a corridor and this kind of thing. And it's perfectly clear when you enter in because the sediment has settled down on the floor of the ship or on the side of it or, you know, depending on how it's sitting. You get in there with those big fins, you're doing this, it stirs up all that sediment and you can't see a thing. And the way you're going to orient is your regulator. When you blow air out of that regulator, you see those bubbles. Even when it's dark, you see the bubbles. You know where they're going. And that tells you if they're going this way, you know, that way is up, you know, or, or they might be going this way. And you realize, wow, I'm turned all the way around. And then when we surfaced, when we came to the top, he said to me, hey, whenever you enter into a ship like that, already have identified where you're coming out on the other side. He said, you never want to swim down into the substructure of a ship with the plan of swimming a football field and coming up on the other side. He's, that's the way to get killed. And, uh, and, and it is, you know, so it's extremely dangerous. But so you have to navigate. You have to know how to navigate. Ladies and gentlemen, we live in those murky times where the fins have stirred up all the sediment, all the nonsense, all the noise in the culture so that it's all just coming up and where it's difficult to navigate. You got to look for your bubbles. And your bubbles in this case are your fixed point. It's the word. It's Jesus Christ. That's our fixed point. And I want to be real, real clear in saying this, a lot of you think that it's all about your feelings. You you really don't you really don't you really don't consult the word. You just you just say to yourself, "Well, I'm being led by the Holy Spirit." I find that when I do that, the reinforce the the it's a funny thing. The the Holy Spirit always reinforces my my opinion. <laughs> he never tells me to do anything that I don't want to do. When I am coupling the guidance of the Holy Spirit with the word, that's the, that's the real corrective. The Holy Spirit will never guide you to do something that is contrary to the word of God, just won't do that. So you want to find the will of God, you, you need to know what the word says. And, um, and that's your fixed point in morality. And the next thing that, that Pascal says is this, I, I love this in, in talking about having that fixed point. In morality, he says, when everything is moving towards depravity, it seems that nothing is moving. When everyone is moving towards depravity, it seems that no one is moving towards depravity. But if one man stops, he shows up the others by becoming a fixed point. So to put that in real terms, when everyone is affirming the non-reality of transgenderism and calling a man a, a woman and a woman a man um, or referring to men as quote-unquote pregnant people, you're rushing towards depravity. That's what you're doing. You are rushing towards depravity. But when you refuse to play along, you show up the others by becoming a fixed point in morality. That's what you do. You are becoming a fixed point in morality. 
and you are pointing people in the right direction. Now, you might suffer consequences for that. But that's what they don't want. Uh, meaning, they want everyone to play along with the fantasy, and they punish those who don't for that very reason. It's because you have become a fixed point of morality. It's because they know that that person who stops and refuses to play along has become uh, um, a danger to them because that, that person threatens to blow up the whole fantasy, to blow up the whole thing. When that person says, no, 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 I'm not playing along with that. No, I will not call homosexuality good when it isn't. I will not say pregnant people. Men cannot get pregnant. I will not call a woman uh, um, a, a man, and I will not call a man a woman. I refuse to do that. I refuse to play along with your white supremacy narrative. I refuse to play along with your white privilege narrative. I refuse to play along with your Nazi and fascist uh, reinterpretations. I refuse to play along with your non-reality. Ladies and gentlemen, you'd want to know how to change the culture. That's the way you change the culture. You show up the others by refusing to rush on towards depravity, and you become that fixed point for other people. And here's a funny thing. It gives courage to other people. It gives courage to other people. And, uh, and I'm mindful of this. To me, to me this, this signifies our situation right now. You'll recall that the armies of Israel are cowering in their trenches as daily, as daily Goliath comes out and he blasphemes the name of God. And no one does a thing about it until David arrives on the scene. And David hears it, and he's, he hasn't been slowly cooked in the propaganda that this man is unbelievable, excuse me, unbeatable. He hasn't been slowly marinated in this. So he arrives, he expresses indignation and shock because he says, why hasn't anybody got down there and fought that guy? You remember what his brother accused him of, and you have to be prepared for this. He called him arrogant. Ladies and gentlemen, when you stand for the truth, and you stand confidently for the truth, people are going to call you that. He is so arrogant. And I'm not talking about when you're behaving like a jerk. We can do that too. We've all done it. But I mean, when, when you stand firm in the knowledge of the truth and you insist that it is the truth, people will call you arrogant. This is what happened to Martin Luther when he said, this is where I stand. I can do no other you're arrogant, Luther. Look at you. You think you're smarter than the whole church fathers. You think you're smarter than all this panel here. You think you're smarter than the king, the emperor. You think you're smarter than everybody. That was an effort to pressure him to change his opinion. And he said, unless he ended most of his, by the way, his articles like this, most of his treatises, unless I am demonstrated by scripture and sound reasoning, I won't change my opinion. So he was, he was indicating I'm open to hearing that I'm wrong, but you're going to have to use Scripture in order to do it. And unless you can do that, I'm not moving. So, ladies and gentlemen, that's how we impact the culture. It's by refusing to play the game. And so David comes along and he says, you know, why isn't anybody fighting this? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the, the armies of the living God? So he says, I'll fight him. And he became a fixed point for the rest of Israel. And when he went out and he defeated Goliath, do you remember what happened next? A shout went up from Israel. And they began to engage. You, ladies and gentlemen, one of you who's listening, who's watching this, you might be the next David. You might be the person who inspires other people to act. 
And by becoming that individual like David, who refuses to rush on towards depravity, but says, nope, I'm stopping. You become a fixed point for other people and you inspire them. And they feel like, you know what? I can stick my head up out of the trench too. I could say something. I could say something to my neighbor. I could, uh, I could say something to my congressman. I could write a letter to the editor. I, I could say something. I could, I could go to the school board meeting. I could go out and peacefully protest uh, what's happening in this country. You become a fixed point for other people when you do that, ladies and gentlemen. And that's, incredibly, that's incredibly important. So make sure that as you are consuming news, and these days it's just everywhere, it's just everywhere. I saw a beautiful little clip recently. It's uh, obviously old because Johnny Carson is dead, but it was a 60 Minutes interview with Johnny Carson and Ed McMahon. It looked to me to be early 80s. And it's with Mike Wallace. And Mike Wallace says, you know, some people criticize you for not being political. And uh, he said, was Red Buttons political? Was, uh, was uh, Jack Parr political? was, and he begins to name these others. He said, no, he says, they stay away from that. He, and he basically goes on to say, it's kind of arrogant when guys like us who are comedians, we're entertainers, become so full of ourselves that we think it's our job to shape public opinion. He says, it's not my job to do that. It's not my job to do that. I'm an entertainer and I stay out of that. Now in Carson's case, what appears to be non-engagement was actually kind of a courageous engagement because here he is in Hollywood receiving a lot of pressure from Hollywood elites to begin to take a position on certain things. And he was saying, nope, not going there, not doing that. I'm not going to do that. As an entertainer, I create a safe space in the culture where anybody, whatever your political opinions are, you can come and I'm not going to, it's not going to be my purpose to offend you, to push a particular point of view. Those safe spaces in the culture are pretty well gone. I mean, even sports these days, it's become very, very difficult um, to watch or to listen to something where that is not bleeding into the commentary in some way. And um, that's very deliberate. The idea, of course, on the left is to try to leave you no space where they're not pushing the worldview, not in advertisement, not in movies, not in radio, not in sports, not in entertainment, nowhere. You just simply can't hide from it. So ladies and gentlemen, I just want to urge you to make sure that you have a fixed point. Um, and whatever your fixed point, mine is Jesus Christ. Mine is the word. doesn't mean I follow it perfectly. I certainly don't. But I tell you what, it gives you orientation. It gives you bubbles. And it lets you know that when you're headed in the wrong direction, when you're swimming in the wrong direction. And, uh, and when you can find your courage and you can find your backbone and you say, you know what, I refuse to rush on, you become a fixed point for others. This is the Larry Alex Taunton Show. We will be back in just a moment. This is the Larry Alex Taunton Show. Welcome back to the Larry Alex Taunton Show. I am Larry Alex Taunton. We've been talking about how to not be seduced by media narratives, how to not to be seduced by the culture. Um, I began by talking about Amy Knight's book, uh, Orders to Kill, and how um, you know I, I really respect Amy Knight as a scholar, and yet it seems like in this particular book, which by the way, I would say what I've read of it so far, it's, it's quite good, but 
it seems that she'd really bought into the, uh, you know, the whole Trump-Russia collusion narrative. And, and it's a silly narrative. I, I, don't, I don't think I ever believed it at any point. Probably most of you didn't. It was so obviously propaganda. But we now find ourselves in a, in a world where even sensible people can be, can be seduced by these things. So uh, we've talked a little bit about Blaise Pascal and how Pascal says that you need to have a fixed point in morality. Hence the reason that I named the organization that I direct the Fixed Point Foundation. It's a reference to Jesus Christ, both in, in, in the naming of this organization and uh, and in Blaise Pascal's <clears throat> and Blaise Pascal's meeting, you know, I drift so far away from the mic, I need to get back over here. Be encouraged by this. There are individuals who have what we might call, you know, w- what people are referring to these days as a red pill moment. It's a it's a reference to the uh, to the Matrix, uh, a movie actually I didn't really like, but uh, a lot of people did. I, I probably lost half my following right there, but. Uh, I've never really been a big fan of that, but but uh, apparently, what's his name, Nemo or something like that? He uh, he takes this you know this red pill and it enables him to see reality, for him to understand reality that otherwise is kind of fraudulent for him. Well, there are instances of people on the left who are having these red pill moments. <laughs> um, Naomi Wolf, Naomi Wolf is a is a Democrat feminist icon, and yet. Naomi Wolf recently wrote uh, an article titled, I think it's called something like Dear Conservatives. I'm sorry. It's, a, it's an apology to conservatives. And you know what her red pill moment was? She broke with the left on uh, vaccines. She was reading more and more of the research. I mean, because more and more physicians, more and more researchers, scientists are breaking ranks from the vaccine, the standard vaccine narrative, which is everybody needs to get a vaccine shot and boosted and reboosted and boosted and boosted and boosted again in order to be safe. Well, she's, you know, she's reading the data and she realizes this is, this is sheer nonsense. Um, and she, you know, published this article and what she's saying, she apologizes to conservatives because she says, you know, I've been hammering away at you people for so long. And, um, and that's because I thought you were all wrong. And now I've come to the conclusion that you were right. I think of my friend Christopher Hitchens. Uh, Christopher Hitchens, the late Christopher Hitchens, who died in, uh, I, I think it's 2011. Uh, Christopher broke with the left over. His red pill moment came with 9-11. And it's because he detected in the, in the leftist media uh, a narrative following 9/11 was there. He he could detect their their America hating um, sentiment in it. That America got what it deserved. That that America had it coming. That we were the evil empire that needed to be taken down. And he said, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! I'm not going along with that." These were Muslim terrorists who flew plane loads of innocent people into buildings full of innocent people, not buying that narrative. And he broke with the left, and of course they hated him for it. By that I don't mean he became a Christian or even that he became a conservative, rather than I, I mean that he decided I'm, I'm, I'm no longer uh, on the America-hating bandwagon. I mean, one of the things that he did late in life that was very meaningful to him was he became a naturalized American citizen. So there are those people 
on the left who are are breaking um, with Democrats and when I, you know Democrats are leftists, but not all leftists are Democrats. So when I often when I'm referring to the to the to the uh, global left, I refer to them as the left, not as Democrats. So uh, we do see that some of these things are happening, and that is uh, is encouraging. But I'll have to tell you this: when you're engaging such people in conversation, and you see them not embracing truth, often it's just simply because it takes courage to break with your own tribe. It's just as much easier to go along. And I suspect in the case of Amy Knight, going along, if she had questioned the Trump Russia uh, collusion narrative, she couldn't have gotten away with saying, you know, evidence for Trump's collusion with Russia is thin and of a questionable nature. She couldn't have got away with that uh, in, in a book. And, and not risk publication of that book. So it was just easier just to go along. It's just easier to go along, and because that wasn't really the main topic of the book anyway. Putin is the topic of the book. And similarly, I think this is what happens with most of us. Um, people just go along because it's easier to go along. And it's a glimpse for you, and it's really what I'm trying to give you in this, this particular podcast today. It's a glimpse of how a regime achieves near-total cooperation in, uh, in achieving their own political uh, aspirations, their own political goals. And it's because the majority of people do go along. Most French, for instance, I was in France recently. The French resistance is a myth. That might be a podcast right there, but the French resistance was a myth. Do you realize that the, the Nazi occupation of France was 18 months old before the first German soldier was killed? meaning that it was deemed to be by Germans a plum assignment. French girls, French wine, beautiful countryside, easy place to be, safe. Because most people went along. And those who we call the resistance didn't come along usually until after um, the August liberation of Paris, August 1944. Hence the reason they were called August or September resistors. Ladies and gentlemen, it's been great to be with you today on the show. Hope you'll tune in for other shows. Follow me on Twitter and uh, we'll talk to you next time. This is the Larry Alex Taunton Show. Turn out the lights. The party's over. They say that all. Ladies and gentlemen, we are grateful for the standing ovation, but there will be no encore for today's performance. Please exit the building in an orderly fashion. Thank you. Honey, can we leave now? <laughs>